Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. All right, good morning again, everybody. This is a favorite day of the week, favorite day of the week, Sunday mornings, love this. Hey, before we get into it, let me just uh, uh, quick tell you that in your, uh, in your bulletin, there, there is an error, which never happens at our place because we have the greatest communications department, but it says that your prayer circles there are on the 15th, you see that? It's, that, that would be next Sunday. It's not going to be next Sunday. This, this, week, this month we moved it one week because we have a, a celebration for our group leaders. And so it's going to be on the 22nd. So start planning already to be here. Prayer circles Sunday night, two weeks from tonight, you want to be here. We're going to pack the theater out on the north end. And we say this, prayer isn't where we get ready for battle. Prayer is where we do battle. How many people know that we're in a battle right now? Yes? Well, then show up and do some battle with us. It'll be on the 22nd on the Sunday night. Right, so we're in our uh, uh, study on uh, Luke. We're going to be about 18, 19 weeks here, and uh, uh, so we're we're continuing that uh, today. Uh, It's interesting. This is just an observation, but I've noticed lately, uh, wherever I look, have you noticed this? Like we live in this unbelievably cautious society, and there's a warning label everywhere you look. It's like those of you who are old enough, like. Danger, Will Robinson. You know what I mean? It's, it's just everywhere we look, warning signs, warning signs, warning signs. And there's so many of them, and so many of them are so worthless. Everywhere we look, this is what you see. You're seeing all kinds of warnings and labels, and this is poison, and blah, 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 blah. And some of them are just pointless. They're needless. Let, let me give you a few examples. For instance, remove child before folding. Like, who's doing this? Like, are you all doing this? You have babies, and you just fold them up, and you just throw in the trunk. Like... Is that necessary? You know, in, in that same vein, like, like shocker. Like this is gonna move. I, I did not see that coming. Like, do we need these kind of warning labels on here? Here's one, I, I, right? Which one of you is doing that that now we all have to have a label? Like are we putting puppies and we're putting kittens in the microwave? That, that's, that's just weird. Do we need that, right? I love this one, I love this, this is my favorite. It's on a hanger, everybody. This is on a hanger. Like which one of you is, like who's doing that? Do we actually need that warning label on hangers so that you folks are remembering not to swallow them? Like, do we do that? I, I actually, this, this might be my favorite. Like, were you just thinking, I'm gonna grab those wires, it could cost death. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. It might also cost me 200 bucks, I ain't having that. Like, do we need these labels? And then this is one that was actually at our place. This was at our place, and I saw this, and we got rid of this one. Now, here's the deal. Right, so we had communion this morning, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'd like everybody just to close your eyes. And whoever took stuff, I'd just like you to put it back. So let's just. <laughs> I do love this. I love the fact that they went King James with it. Whilst. Like, let's not say whilst. Like, what happens after a while is there are just so many warning labels. There's a warning on everything. Some of them are so needless that I think what's happened is almost we become oblivious to warnings. And I'm just giving you a heads up. 
This morning, we're going to read a warning. It's very subtle. I'm not sure that we would see it as a warning. I'm telling you, there is a warning this morning that I think is severe, that we need to be heads up, we need to be aware of. And here's the beauty of it. If you've been in church nine months before you were born, you've been going to church all your life, you've been a follower of Jesus all your life, there is a warning. You need to wake up and you need to pay attention, right? But if you're here this morning, you say, I'm not really a follower of Christ. You know, I don't call myself a follower of Christ. I don't even typically go to church. I just happen to pop in this morning. I'm telling you, there's a warning here for you as well, and we should pay attention. I think when we get there, when we unpack this, I think you're gonna see the warning and go, yeah, I need to be very careful of that. So I'm gonna ask you if we would, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter four. We're in Luke chapter four as we're working our way through the uh, book of Luke. And then when you get that, I'm just gonna ask you if you'd stand to your feet. And guess, I just want you to notice, we won't be going up and down all morning, right? But we stand when we read our primary text. It's just a Cedar Valley thing. And the reason we do that is just, it just reminds us every once in a while, this is not just a book written by some good fellas, right? This right now, this is God speaking to you and me. So I'm starting uh, Luke chapter four, I'm starting in verse uh, 14. And it says this, follow along as I read. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. And when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good, uh, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, verse 19, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, and then he began to speak to them. The scripture you have just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Verse 23. Then he says, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Meaning, do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. 25 says, certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. 28, and when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your written word. We thank you that you've given it to us. We thank you that it speaks life and truth to us. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us. And so this morning, Father, reveal yourself. Show us who you are and explain this to us. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to come and explain this, and not just a brief explanation. Show us in our own lives, personally, how this applies to us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You guys can have a seat. So I'm just telling you, be prepared because we're going to get to a point where there's this huge, huge warning. And I'm just hoping that we see it, that we're, we're, we're just like we wake up just a little bit. So look at this passage, if you will, start in verse 14. It says, then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Spirit's power. And I just want to stop you there because if you read through Luke sometimes, you know, you, you need to read the Gospels and put the Gospels together. John in particular didn't write real chronologically, but even some have these gaps. And if you were reading through Luke and you go, oh, Jesus got baptized in the Jordan River and then he went out to the wilderness to be tempted, you know, by Satan. And then, and then he goes to Galilee. Well, it's not exactly chronologically that way. And you'll pick that up if you read John's Gospel and you read through about the first, first four chapters. But actually Jesus had almost a year of ministry down in Judea. Now I'm, I'm going to point this out to you just because I'm extremely visual and I'm assuming there's got to be at least one other two people, one or two others here. So this always helps me. So just a reminder, because this will come up in the story. This is Israel. And I mistakenly said one time, it's like a giant strip of bacon. That's not appropriate. So here's Israel, <laughs> this large strip of land. And, and you divide it into three regions, right? The northern region is Galilee, and that's where the Sea of Galilee is. Okay. Then you come down into Samaria. No good Jew goes into Samaria because they called the Samaritans half-breeds and dogs. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile, a lot of them. And so they would all travel around Samaria. And then you get to the bottom section, and that's where Judea is. Judea is where the city of Jerusalem is, and it's also where the Dead Sea is. So you oftentimes look at the nation of Israel like the Sea of Galilee with the Jordan River flowing out of it all the way down to the Dead Sea. Okay, this talks about Jesus now returning to Galilee. He would have had Judean ministry for maybe, maybe a year, and now he's back up in Galilee, filled with the Spirit's power. Galilee, at that time, uh, Josephus, the ancient historian, first century historian, he said Galilee was about three million people. So let's just do this. Let's just say that Josephus exaggerated a little. There's two and a half million people, most likely, up here in Galilee. There's about 240 towns and villages in Galilee, right? And now it says... And I want you to notice this. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. Everybody knows about Jesus. He, he, like, first of all, he grew up up in Galilee. He's, he's had ministry down in Judea, right? But, but he's up in Galilee. And the reports are spreading everywhere. Like, everybody's hearing about Jesus. And the question kind of becomes, well, how do they feel about Jesus? And Luke goes on to tell us he taught regularly in the synagogues. And he was praised by everyone. I want you to note that. And if I had my Bible, I'd underline that. That at this stage, Jesus is praised by everyone. It's all good. Everybody likes him. This guy's, his, his social media is blowing up. Everything he writes in there, like, 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 like. They just love this guy right now. He taught regularly in the synagogues. and he was So he's regularly going into synagogues and teaching. That's what Jesus is doing. Then Luke continues. It said, when he came to the village of Nazareth, stop. This is his boyhood home. This is where he's from. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Now, if you're up in Galilee and you got the Sea of Galilee, Jesus' home base when he went up to Galilee was Capernaum. Capernaum is a little town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's been his home base. Okay, now he's going to go back to his boyhood town, Nazareth. It's literally about 60 miles straight, I say straight, southwest of, of Capernaum. That's Nazareth, a very small village. But it says, we know this, we know that you couldn't have a synagogue if you didn't have 10 Jewish men. So it, it's not like there's four folks living there, right? It's, it's, a, it's a town. It's his boyhood home. As usual, I like that, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up 
to read the scripture. He's actually teaching. Remember, news of him is spread everywhere. The word is all good. Everybody's praising him. And he's going synagogue to synagogue. Now he gets back to his boyhood town. He goes into the synagogue and he's going to teach. He's teaching them. And it says, the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. Now remember this, just historical context. We didn't have the Bible. Like we always talk about, well, like in the second century, third century, when they read the Bible. They didn't have the Bible. We didn't have the Bible until about 400. We had all these writings. They hadn't been put together and, and, and kind of actually said, this is now what we call the canon. This is the Bible. They had that in about 400. They also did not have chapters until about the year 1300, roughly. They didn't have chapters, and they didn't get verses put into the Bible until about 1600. You know that, that the original authors weren't writing. They're like, ooh, I should put another verse in there. They, they weren't doing that. They were just writing it. Editors came along later and said that. And the reason that that matters, the reason that's important, is because of what it says. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed. It's just a scroll. But I also want you to notice this, because this stuff's important. He unrolled the scroll, and I would circle the word in my Bible, found. He found a passage. He found this place. He's intentional. Jesus wasn't just opening it up. Like I hear folks tell me all the time, I just, you know, when I'm going to read the Bible, I just open it up. I close my eyes. I stick my finger, and that's where I read, right? First of all, not a good plan. But I would also say this. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus is scrolling through Isaiah. This is how well he knows the scriptures. And FYI, a lot of rabbis back then, like they would have had it memorized. Okay, they would have memorized it. So Jesus, being well trained, he opens up the scroll. Nope, nope, that's what I want. And he found it. Now get ready for what he's going to read to them. It's really interesting. This is Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is a messianic passage. It's speaking about the coming Messiah, the Messiah who would come. And Isaiah, way back when he wrote it, he's writing. The Spirit of God is speaking to him, and he's writing as if he's hearing, uh, as if he's speaking for this Messiah. So this is Isaiah writing. Now Jesus is reading. Do you see the irony of what Jesus is reading? He's reading like as if it's the Messiah. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. This is Isaiah 61. I'm just going to say this now, but you should note this. Maybe write yourself a note. It's very interesting where he quit reading. Where Jesus stopped reading, see, he just says this, that the time of the Lord's favor has come. We live today in the time of the Lord's favor. It's called the age of grace. Jesus has come, right? And now we can approach God by grace through faith in Christ. Previously, they didn't. They had a whole sacrificial system. What's interesting is this is the, year, the time of the Lord's favor. He's saying he's ushering it in. We live in it. Right after that, he says, and after that, basically he's saying, there will be a time of God's anger for his enemies. Jesus didn't read that line. That's the second return of Christ when there's the day of judgment. Jesus is saying, we're going to enter this time frame, right? So he reads this to him, and then it says, he rolls up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Well, if he just sat down, he stood up to read. Why are they looking at him intently now? Because in the synagogues, what you did is you stood up to read the word, and then you sat down to teach. 
And I think we should be a biblical model. I want us to be a biblical church. And so what I'm saying is starting next Sunday, what I'm going to have you all do is you will stand and I will sit. And I've got a chair all picked out. It's like a beanbag chair, basically, is what I'm going to go with. But it's interesting. So he sits down and now they look at him intently because now is when you teach in the synagogue. You sit and you teach. Got it? And they're looking not just at him. They're like, what is he going to say? He just read this passage. What does this guy have to say? We've all spoken well of him. We all love him. What is he going to say? Well, here's what he says. The scripture you just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Mic drop. Translation. I'm the Messiah. For the people who tell me, like, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claimed to be the Messiah. I'm like, you've never read the Bible. He just said, the scripture that that you have heard just now, it's been fulfilled this very day. I'm the Messiah. Now, how do you think they're going to respond to that? Folks are going to lose their marbles, don't you think? Watch this. Uh, Oh, I wanted to point this out to you. Sorry. Uh, I just wanted to point out and bring it up again what what he didn't say. We talked about that, what he didn't say. Right? And, and I do think that's important. He's saying God's judgment is not here yet. But now watch how they respond to this. Everyone spoke well of him. And they were amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. And then they asked this question, how can this be? Isn't this Joseph's son? Like, you just need to know this for the context of the story. Things are still really good. They're amazed. They're in wonder at his teaching. Okay, everything is good, everybody. Get, 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 just get that picture in your head. Jesus is teaching. He just said something really radical, and everybody's fine with it to this point. Okay, now just skip in your Bibles. Just go down to verse 28. Just go down to 28. When they heard this, now, now we've skipped the story, so I know that, and I'm going to take you back there. But now in 28 it says, when they heard this, the question is, what is this that they heard? It says, the people in the synagogue, now they're furious. He just claimed to be the Messiah, and everybody's okay with that. He's just claiming to be God. They're okay with that. But now when they hear this in the synagogue, they're furious. We're going to find out what it is that really makes them furious. But the question here becomes, how furious are they? Well, they jump up. They mob. Remember, they're in the synagogue. They're still in the synagogue. They jump up. They mob him in the synagogue. They force him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. And they intended to push him over the cliff. When you push someone over the cliff, what always follows is we all pick up stones and now we throw. You would push someone off a cliff. You push them down to the pit in order to stone them to death. This is how mad they are. They're so furious right now that in the middle of the synagogue, they jump up. They mob the guy that everybody loved. They're going to push him off a cliff and they're going to stone him. And I just love this comment. So I just included this because I think it's funny. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Like, Jesus just scoobies right out. He's like, yeah, I'll be going on. Like, he's God. He just does whatever he wants. I just think that's one of the coolest miracles that he does. And an angry mob that wants to stone him, right? And so the question becomes this. What happened? What happened? What did he say that went, it's all good. We all love him. We all praise him. Everything. We're amazed. And now they are ticked. Like, they're hopping mad, like, we're going to stone you, brother. Everything was great. In the middle of the sanctuary, they mob him. They drag him out there. They're going to push him off the hill, and they're going to stone him. Okay, now go back in your Bibles just a bit. Because after he reads from Isaiah, 
And, and he says, you know, what you've heard is, is, has happened today. Then he says this to him. This is all very interesting stuff. He says, you'll undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Like, what does he mean by that? Well, here's what he means. What he's saying, they're saying, do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. Hey, we heard about you in Capernaum. We heard about the miracles you did. Do some now. Do some for us. Do some of those miracles. We want to see it, boy. We want to see you dance. We want you to be the God we want. We want you to do what we say. We want you to do it the way we say it. We want you to do it when we want it. Dance for us, Jesus. Do us some miracles. That's what we want. That's what they're saying. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. No prophet is. No prophet is accepted. And now he's going to give them a couple of examples. In other words, I'm not going to do miracles here. I'm not going to answer your, I'm not dancing for you. I'm not going to do that. Right? No prophet does that in his own hometown. Now he starts to tell them about two prophets. And, and they tell you this in the passage. He talks about Elijah first. And there was a period in Israel's history where there was a famine. There, there was a great drought first for three and a half years. And then there was a famine that followed. And the reason was because they were caught up in idolatry. Over and over and over the nation of Israel. Idolatry and then God punishes them. And so God, it's during the time of Elijah, God has punished them. There's a drought, there's a famine, and specifically, there are a lot of widows who are starving to death because they got nobody to take care of them, nobody to provide for them, and they just widows are starving to death. And he tells them that story, and he says, but Elijah, he wasn't sent to any of those widows. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Sidon, this is Lebanon. This is Lebanon. They were enemies of the Jews, the Sidonians. Like, they would have been enemies. Elijah goes there and this, he walks up to this woman and she's actually out gathering sticks. She's just going to gather some sticks. She's going to make her last meal. That's what she's doing. And Elijah comes up to her and he says, hey, fix me a dinner. And she said, I'm just gathering sticks for fire. This is all the flour I've got left. This is all the oil I've got left. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this last meal for me and my son and then we're going to die. And Elijah says, make the meal for me anyway. And it says, by faith she does it. And it says that her flour never ran out and her oil never ran out. He did that for a Gentile woman. There are all kinds of Jewish widows, right? He could have performed a miracle right there for them, and he didn't. And furthermore, he points to Elisha. You got Elijah, you got Elisha. It says, many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman. Naaman's a Syrian. He's the commander of the Syrian army. He's an arch enemy. Right? He comes down with leprosy. A lot of you know that. If you had a diagnosis of leprosy in those days, it was a life of isolation. No one would talk to you. If they saw you coming on the street, you were required to yell out leper. You had to yell that. And then you had to go to the other side of the road. It's a life of complete isolation. That's what's going to happen here. Right? She, this uh, uh, commander, Naaman, he's got a servant girl. She finds out about Elisha. She says, you should go see Elisha. She gets word to Elisha. Elisha says, he doesn't need to come and see me. Tell him to go dip himself in the Jordan River seven times. He goes and he dips himself in the river seven times. And just like that, he's healed. And not only is he healed, but the scriptures say his skin was like that of a young boy once again. See, he just told two stories where a prophet could have done a miracle there in their own land, what they wanted, the way they wanted it, to whom they wanted it. See, that's what they wanted. And he's like, no, I'm, Jesus is saying this now. I'm not going to do that. I'm not dancing for you. Right? Now, here's the question. Where did this whole turn start? Because here comes the warning. This is what we've got to see today in 2022. Listen, remember this passage? It says, when they heard this, remember that? 
The people in the synagogue were furious, jumping up. They mobbed him. They forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. Like, they're hopping mad, hopping mad, hopping mad. They're so ticked. Okay, back up again right after he said it, right after he read it. And everybody loves him. Everybody loves him. We just read this. Everyone spoke well of him, and they were amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. And here's the question, and here's the warning. Because here's the question they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? And what's the answer to that? Be careful. That ain't Joseph's son. See, here's what happens. They want to make Jesus more like them. Isn't that Joseph's son? He ain't the son of Joseph. He's the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. Now, when we say the son of God, listen, there wasn't some weird way in which God got together and he made it somehow mysteriously with Mary and they had a child. When we say he's the son of God, it means in essence, he is God. Jesus is God. We always say this at Christmas. You are to name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the manifestation of God. Listen, in Matthew 26, when Jesus, the the religious officials, they have Jesus and they say this to him. Tell us who you are. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, it's exactly as you guys say. And you know what they said? Now you got to die. That's blasphemy. Because they knew that by acknowledging that he was the Son of God, he was claiming to be God. They're all wanting Jesus to be the Son of Joseph. Isn't he kind of like us, think like us, act like us, do like us. Isn't he going to take care of us? Listen, the scriptures say this in the book of Numbers. Like, God is not a man that he should lie. He's, he's not a man that he should think like us. Christ is not us. When we do this, isn't he like us? Well, he walked this earth like we did, but he's God. Jesus is God. My favorite one to take everybody to, anytime like you're confused about this, if you talk to any cult, any group that, 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 that says, oh, we're kind of like you, but they're not, always go to John chapter 1. You should have this just outlined in your Bible. Circle this, mark this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word, word, is the Greek word logos or logos, however you want to say it. And it's where we get our word logo. Look, I don't have to explain this to you. If I show you a big giant swish, it's just like this. What do you say? Nike. You say Nike. It's, it's Nike. It's, it's the logo for Nike. It is in essence like If I show you two golden arches, what do you say? McDonald's. You think McDonald's. It is their logo. If I show you an apple with a bite taken out of it, what do you say? Nike. Apple, it's Apple, it's Apple. It's the essence of Apple. If I show you a capital G that's kind of an all different rainbow colors, what do you say? You say Google. It's their logo. It's the essence of who they are. Jesus is the logo of God. He is in essence, he is God. He is God come to earth. When we get this mixed up and we start to go, well, isn't he Joe's kid? No, no, Jesus is God. We worship him as God. He doesn't think like we do. He doesn't act like we do. He doesn't have to hop and dance when we say Jesus hop and dance. We talked about it last year. What are we supposed to do when it feels like God is silent? Because it's hard. I'm not, I'm not diminishing anyone's pain. He's not required to dance if we throw a dollar out there. He's God. We got to think of him as God. Now let me ask you a couple questions. How do we think of God? Is God holy? Now I'm asking you a question. Is God holy? 
Okay, let me just say this. And I will say this as lovingly and as gracious as I can as a pastor. I ain't screaming at anybody. I'm not raising my voice. I'm not here to shame anybody. The Bible says, you be holy because I'm holy. Church, can I just speak this to you? We got to put away the porn. We got to put the porn away. Now just know this. I ain't just talking to men. Because the statistics today say that almost 50% of women are watching porn. And actually, statistically, when women sit down to watch porn, they watch it for longer. Church, question, is God holy? Okay, we got to be holy. I hear people saying all the time, oh, pastor, we want revival. We want revival. We want revival. But nobody wants to talk about repentance. You can't have revival. Nobody wants revival more than I do. I want to see this whole neighborhood come to Jesus. I want to see this whole neighborhood come to Jesus. Wherever you live, I want to see your neighborhood come to Jesus. But we got to be holy. We have got to be holy. Right? Let today be a starting point. If you say, yeah, I've been watching porn. I've been really struggling with porn. What if today was a new start for you? What if you started getting into accountability? Because you can't do this by yourself. That's the great lie of Satan. Satan would just say, shh, you can do this. No, you can't. No, you can't. We have a men's group that meets on Wednesday mornings. And I'd start to check that out. I'd start getting involved. I'd start getting together with another Christian brother or sister. We don't have a women's group yet. We will. God is holy. See, when we start to do this, it just makes us feel better about us. But he doesn't dance when we say dance. He's God. He's holy. Let me ask you another question. Is God sovereign? When we say that in church, we mean this. If you're not a church person, we just mean is he completely in control at all times for eternity? Is God sovereign? Okay. Okay. He's in control. You and I are in control. And along with his sovereignty, let me ask you this. Is he good? Can we just trust? Can we just trust? Because I'm with you, man. I'm with you. I'm losing my marbles sometimes going, God, what are you? Just wait a minute. He's in control, and his plan is always good. Can we trust that? Can we, can we trust in who he is? Can we believe that he's, he's watching over us, that he hears us, that he sees us, that he sees everything that's going on? Okay, can, can, can we live that way now? Can, could, could that actually affect my behavior? Could I live that way? Let me ask you another question. Is God forgiving? Is God forgiving? Okay. So when we screw up, and Neil's going to screw up, I guarantee you that. When we screw up, like, we don't run away from God. Right? God is forgiving. God stands like this. God says, no, kid, come here. Come here. Come to me. Walk toward me. Move, move this way. Why? Because he's forgiving. Because he's a God who forgives. We, we don't run away. The first thing we do when we screw up is we turn around, we acknowledge that it's sin, and we head to the Father. Right? Because God is forgiving. If you're new, we always have a big so what at the end. So if you were asleep, it doesn't matter. You just wake up, you get the big so what. It's the cliff notes. Our big so what today is this. Everything hinges on who Jesus is. Is he, is he kind of like us? Is he just one of us? Well, we live this experience, but he's God. He's holy. He's sovereign. He's good. He's forgiving. See, everything, everything, everything 
hinges on who Jesus is and who do we make him out to be. And when we start going, oh, you know, he's just a big guy upstairs. You know, he's my bro, you know. He's not. He's the holy creator of the universe. I mean, it all hinges on that. Who do we see Jesus as? So that's my question for you today. Who do you say he is? And I'm just not asking you like, hey, give me your answer. I'm saying, who do you say he is? Like, would your life validate that? Would my life validate that? Would, would Would folks look at my life and go, that dude, he believes that Jesus is God. Like, would they actually, they may not come up with all those words, but I'm just saying, if they were asked, would they, would they get that? If they were looking at your life, can I just ask you to think about this for a minute? See, what if all of us, what if all of us right now, what if we just said, man, we're in it. The mission is the most important thing. And lost people got to know, come to know Jesus. And because of that, I'm going to live my life as if Jesus is God, as if God is holy, if God is, you know, what if we, what if we walked out of here and we started living like that? What would happen? Like, what would happen to my neighborhood? What, what would happen, what would happen to the folks at my gym? What, what would happen at your place of work? What would happen to y'all's schools? What would happen? What would happen if you started living your life that way? What would happen? I mean, you, you, you guys are going to work. We got our young adults, like you guys are, you, you're interacting with people. What would happen? What would happen in our homes? What would happen with our kids, right? In our own homes, with family in our own homes? What if we lived as if everything hinged on who we say Jesus is and then we just lived it? Man, that's first century church right there. Am I right? That's first century church. There wasn't any strategy. Let's just live radically different lives. And people are like, what's up with you? What? You're like, oh, let me tell you about this Jesus. Oh, right on, I'm interested, right? And so, Here's then we do the we do the big now what big now what's really simple we just got to surrender we just got to surrender you know we had worship this morning this is still worship in the word and I, I always get a kick out of this because I go back to this you know Matthew chapter six the disciples have been hanging out with Jesus for a while it always brings me great comfort and then they go Psst, we don't we don't actually know how to pray and it's like oh snap okay let me let me help you out here do you remember how I prayed our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. What is that? That's worship. That's worship. Hallowed be your name. You are holy. You are to be praised. But the next thing he says then to me is really interesting. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Oh, wait a minute. Because this whole time, I kind of thought it was about me. Some of you, are you with me? What if we just said, your will be done? It's about your kingdom. It ain't about my kingdom. It's about yours. What if we live that way? I'm just saying, the potential is there, folks. We will change not just this community. Brother, we're going to change your community. That's how we're going to live. We're coming to your town, right? And your church would change us. Like, we will change the world. That doesn't need some radical strategy. We need to start living like followers of Christ. And we, gotta, we just got to surrender. We got to surrender. Surrender.